Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. All right, good morning. So as, as Daniel was saying, um, and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we're taking a break from Luke and we're diving into the attributes of God. We're focusing on different attributes of God. And so today, we are going to focus on the self-sufficiency of God. And what we're going to see is that because God has no needs, He is the only one able to meet our needs. Okay, so before we dive into that, though, I want to take a step back and ask why. Why are we even taking this time to focus on the attributes of God? And so A.W. Tozer once said, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I want us to consider this statement for a second. I think it's interesting that Tozer does not say what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. He says what comes to our minds. And and I think it's an important distinction because we can believe a lot of things about God, but only when that belief takes root in our heart is it what naturally comes to our minds. So what am I talking about? So this same thing is true about anything. So we'll look at uh, exercise, for example. Okay, so I can believe that exercise is good for me. And I do believe that. I work with athletes, and I think exercise is a good thing. If I go out and exercise, I'm going to feel better. But that's not always what comes to my mind when I think about exercise. A couple weeks ago, my wife came up to me and she's like, hey, do you want to go on a run with me? And what came to my mind in that moment was, no, no, I, I don't want to go on a run with you. Because last time we went on a run, it was really hot outside and my knee started hurting, and I was sore the next day. So no, no, I don't want to go on a run. Um, And I think the same is true um, with donuts, for instance. You know, I can believe that donuts are bad for me. Okay, I believe donuts are bad for me. There's a lot of calories, there's a lot of carbs, a lot of sugar, but And so, anyway, I believe donuts are bad for me. Uh, Sorry, I was distracted by Homer. So, anyway, so yeah, so I believe donuts are bad for me. And I think there's a Krispy Kreme slogan here that says donuts are bad for me. So so I can believe that, and I know that if I eat a donut, I'm going to feel like taking a nap. You know, I'm going to feel worse. But that's not always what comes to my mind when I think about donuts. When I think about donuts, you know, when I pass a Dunkin' Donuts, I think, you know what, that actually sounds pretty good. And if somehow I'm able to resist the urge to buy a donut at Dunkin' Donuts, thankfully, two blocks down, there's a Krispy Kreme. And so when I pass Krispy Kreme, what comes to my mind is going to be, you know what, yeah, I really do want a donut, and actually, I'm going to get one, because it's going to taste good. It will be delicious. So anyway... That is why we are studying the attributes of God. 
Because we want the truth of God not to be just what we believe. We want the truth of God to sink into our hearts so it is what comes to our minds when we think about God. And so today, we are going to focus on the self-sufficiency of God. And here's how we're going to do that. First, we're going to listen to Paul as he talks to the people of Athens, and he teaches them about the self-sufficiency of God. And then we're going to sit with Jesus as he talks with a Samaritan woman and teaches her about the self-sufficiency of God. And then finally, we're going to talk about what it might look like if that belief in the self-sufficiency of God takes root in our hearts and changes the way we live. So let's get started. We are going to be in Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. So in Acts 17, Paul is going to address the people in Athens. And just to set the stage, Paul has been traveling and preaching a lot of different places, and he is sent to Athens to kind of take a break. This is a pit stop for Paul. Just go to Athens and get some rest. But when he lands in Athens, he notices something about the people there. He notices that the people in Athens are searching, that they have a thirst deep in their soul, and they're looking to satisfy it. And so where do they turn? The problem is they turn to idols. So what is an idol? An idol for us, we can think of it as anything we turn to other than God for satisfaction. And so in Athens, it is actually literal idols. They were looking to false gods, and they actually built temples to these false gods. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And when it says his spirit was provoked within him, in the NIV it says he was greatly distressed. And this reminds me of a time in the Gospels when Jesus was traveling and he entered a city and it said that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think that's exactly how Paul feels here. He sees these people, they're hungry and they're thirsty, but they have no shepherd. They are looking to idols. And again, that is a problem because these idols can't satisfy that thirst. And we see that in verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so why is it always something new? Well, it's always something new because nothing ever satisfies. Every idol is insufficient. So hang with me here for just a second. So why are these idols insufficient? I believe it is because they are created things, okay? And every created thing is going to have limits and going to have needs. The nature of a created thing is to need. And so something with limits and something with needs can never fully satisfy. 
So what we need, what we need is actually someone without needs. We need someone whose nature is to give, to provide, to satisfy. We need a self-sufficient someone. And Paul knows this, and as he enters Athens, that is what is provoking his spirit. That is what distresses Paul, because the people of Athens are looking to created things, things with need to satisfy a thirst that only a self-sufficient God, one who gives, can truly satisfy. So Paul is so provoked, he gathers a group of people together, and he's like, we got to talk about this. So he gets them together in a place called the Areopagus, and he addresses them. And what he's going to do is actually introduce them to God, the self-sufficient one. And we'll pick it up in verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's immediately making this contrast between these created things, these idols, and the true God who is a creator. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. I am talking about the creator. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the sustainer of everything. And then I imagine he looks around and he sees these temples to their idols, these created things, and he says, he does not live in temples. He is not like your gods. He cannot be contained because he has no limits. He lives everywhere. And then he says he isn't served by human hands. Again, he's not like your gods. He doesn't need anything. And so you can't serve him. You can't meet his needs because he has no needs. He never gets hungry. He never gets thirsty. He never gets tired. And then he says, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. His nature is to give. He is a giver and a giver only. And he makes this clear in Psalm 50 and verse 12. In Psalm 50 verse 12 it says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. So he's saying, you know, even if I had a need, I would not tell you about it. I'm not going to ask you for help because everything that exists is mine. It belongs to me. God is the self-sufficient one. And being the self-sufficient one, God is the only one who can meet our needs. And so in verse 26, Paul says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul goes on. He says, yes, God is the creator. And then he says, God made us. We are the created. And he made us a certain way. He made us with limits and he made us with needs. And that is his design. So unlike God, we have limits and we have needs. 
And so if any of you have kids, you know this is true, okay? I have four kids, and so I see need every day. Uh, my wife and I feel like we can never satisfy the needs of our kids. It's like, I feel like we go to the grocery store every other day, and we fill the cupboards, and we fill the fridge, and like, we blink, and everything's gone. And so, and, and our kids don't just have these physical needs, you know, they hunger, they thirst, they need rest, but they also have these emotional needs. They get scared, they get upset, they get angry, they fight. And in our house, I feel like it is a very rare moment, a priceless moment, when there are like no needs, when all the needs are met. I feel like, you know, we get someone fed and then someone's like, I need a drink. Or we get someone to sleep and then someone is crying. So anyway, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. <laughs> um, so, but our kids are a picture of us. We are that same way. We are full of needs. And I think we would agree with this, but this is actually where it starts to get tough, okay? Up to this point, I think we would agree with everything Paul has said. You know, yep, God is the creator. Sure, yeah, I believe that. God has no needs. Yep, I, yep, I believe it. He is self-sufficient. I have a lot of needs. True, yes, I have a lot of needs. And God is the only one who can satisfy my needs. He designed it that way. Okay, yes, I believe it. So he paints this picture of we have God, self-sufficient, meter of needs, and then me, insufficient and needy. And again, I think we believe that, but at least for me, it is not always what comes to my mind when I have a need. When I have a need, what comes to my mind is, you know, I, I think I got this. This isn't a big deal. You know, I think I can handle this on my own. I can actually be self-sufficient. And there's a problem with that because that is not the design. That is not the way God designed it. And so here's what happens. I have this need and I think, okay, I'm going to take care of this on my own. And I try and I try to meet that need, and over time that need becomes a weight. And it starts weighing me down. And the more I try to lift it, the heavier and heavier it gets. And maybe you can relate. Maybe there is something right now that is weighing you down. And the more you try to figure it out, the more you try to deal with it, the more you try to lift it on your own, the heavier and heavier and heavier it gets. But here's the truth. You were not meant to carry that on your own. God gives us needs. He made us with needs, not so that we would have to suffer or feel, feel weighed down. He made us with needs to point us to himself. He made us with needs to bring us to himself. And that's what Paul says in verse 27. He says that they should seek God and perhaps 
feel their way toward him and find him. Our limits point us to the limitless one. Our needs point us to the one who satisfies, the self-sufficient one. So that's it. So Paul lays it out for us. He says we need to see a true picture of God. He is self-sufficient, no needs. His nature is to give. And then he says we need a true picture of ourselves. We are insufficient. We are full of needs. Our nature is to need. And we were created that way for a reason, and that reason is to point us to God. And so we're going to see this process play out in John chapter 4. So we'll switch gears from Acts and we'll go to John chapter 4. And in John 4, we're going to see Jesus meet a Samaritan woman. So again, to set the stage, Jesus and his disciples are traveling and they're going from Judea to Galilee. And in between Judea and Galilee is a town called Samaria. So they're going to stop in Samaria. And so when they stop in Samaria, Jesus rests at a well and he sends the disciples ahead to go get some food. So just so you can imagine it, this is actually the heat of the day. It is about noon, and so it's the hottest part of the day. And if people are going to go visit this well, if they're going to draw water from the well, they're going to want to do that in the cool of the day. So first thing in the morning or in the evening, they would go visit this well. So if someone were going to go to this well and draw water in the heat of the day, I think it's safe to say that they don't want to be bothered, that they don't want to see anybody else. They want to be left alone. I think it'd be safe to say they want to be self-sufficient in that moment. And so, of course, as Jesus is resting, a woman comes to that well. And as I imagine this, I think it might have been like a little bit of an awkward situation. So like this woman always goes to the well in the heat of the day so she doesn't have to see anybody. And as she comes to the well, there's a guy sitting there. She's like, what are you doing? This is like my time to go to the well. And so she might have waited for a few minutes, been like, okay, this guy will move on, and then I'll get my water and go about my day. But it looks like he's not going anywhere. And so I think she might have thought, you know, that actually looks like a Jewish man, and I'm a Samaritan woman, so this is probably safe. Jewish men never talk to Samaritan women. I'll just go get my water and be on my way. But of course, that's not, not how it's going to go down. So she walks up to the well, and Jesus immediately engages her. And we'll pick it up in verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And so he starts this conversation kind of abruptly, like, hey, give me a drink. And when I first read this, I'm like, this is kind of weird. Like, wouldn't he say, hi, you know, nice to meet you. My name is Jesus, you know. You know, have a little bit of a conversation. But he just says, you know, give me a drink. Um, But I think there's actually a purpose in that, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. So in verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's like she's saying, Why are you asking me for a drink? Why are you bothering me right now? I thought I was going to be left alone. But Jesus doesn't get the hint. He answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus like 
flips the situation totally around. He's like, I actually don't need anything from you. I want to give you something. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the one who gives, the one who satisfies, you would be asking me for a drink. And this is not what she ex expected. So she's a little confused and she's like, um, so this well is really deep and you have nothing to draw water with. So where are you going to get this living water? So, so she's a little bit confused. And so Jesus explains it to her in verse 13. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, it's like Jesus is saying, I know how this looks. It looks like I'm the thirsty one and I don't have anything to draw water with. And here's you over here and you have this thing to draw water with. And so you're the one with the access to water. So what he is saying is, you know what? Things are not always as they seem. In reality, I am the self-sufficient one. I've got the water, and you over here, you're the needy, insufficient one. He is pointing her to something bigger than this water and this physical thirst. He is talking about this deeper thirst of the soul. And I think it's really cool that he points out this thirst is not going to be satisfied by a well. This thirst isn't something that you go to a well and you've got to get this water every day. The satisfaction for this thirst is a spring. It is constantly giving life. It is living water. Its nature is not to be taken from. Its nature is to give. And it reminds me of Isaiah 55, 1, where it says, Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come to this spring. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And so this gets back to the way Jesus started this conversation. Jesus said, give me a drink. And I think what he was doing there is he is showing us how to approach God. We don't have to be timid. We don't have to be polite. We don't have to introduce ourselves. God is a spring of living water. He is ready to give. All we have to do is say, give me a drink. And so this woman finally gets it. And so in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She says, give me a drink. And what Jesus says next is interesting. So he's going to take her to this spring, this spring of living water. But in order to get to the spring, she is going to have to leave the, the broken, insufficient well that she has been drinking from. She can't drink from two places at once. She's going to have to go from here to here. So in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So here we see this insufficient well she's been drinking from. She's been looking to men, she's been looking to these relationships to satisfy the thirst of the soul. And just like the people in Athens always turning to something new, she is never satisfied. She is still thirsty. She has had five husbands, and the one she now has is not her husband. And in the midst of this, in the midst of her wanting to be left alone, putting up this wall, nobody bother me, I'm just going to be self-sufficient, I'll take care of myself, Jesus breaks through and loves her enough to tell her the truth. He says, no relationship is going to get it done. If we drink of anything else, we're going to be thirsty again. There is only one source of living water, and that source is me. He makes it very clear that he is the self-sufficient one. And so in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And this is actually a really big deal. Jesus didn't tell people that he was the Christ very often. He actually kept that a secret. But here, with this Samaritan woman, he makes it clear. I am he. I am the one who satisfies. And what is her response? In verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So when it finally clicks, when she finally gets it, she leaves her water jar and goes into town and tells everybody what just happened. This person who avoids people at all costs runs and chases them down. Her shame is gone. She understands the fullness of God and Christ, the fullness of life in Christ, and nothing else matters anymore. And I think once we understand this, once we understand how fully, richly, deeply God satisfies, it changes things. We're not the same. It reminds me of this song we sing a lot, and it's almost like I can hear the Samaritan woman singing it. And it goes like this, I need not to cling to dead, helpless idols. They no longer can hold any comfort for me. So, in these two stories, in Athens and with the Samaritan woman, we see the self-sufficiency of God on display. And we see that it changes things. So I want us to think for a few minutes, what would it look like for us today, if this belief in the self-sufficiency of God actually took root in our hearts and started to change the way we live. And I think it would actually make life a lot simpler. You know, again, we're not clinging to these dead, helpless idols for satisfaction anymore. We go to one place. We go to the self 
self-sufficient one, the God who satisfies. So I think what we would do is we would desire God. We would hunger and thirst for God. We would want to spend time with God. We would want to trust God. And so when I think about this simple life, it reminds me of someone. I don't know if someone comes to your minds, but for me, it's Mr. Rogers, okay? I don't know about you guys, but I'm a big Mr. Rogers fan. I think Mr. Rogers is awesome, okay? So I grew up in the 80s, and I watched a little bit of Mr. Rogers. Anybody see Mr. Rogers growing up? All right. So, and to be honest, actually, back then, I just thought he was okay, you know? Yeah, this, this show is kind of funny. Um, and so I thought Mr. Rogers was all right. But now, as an adult, I feel like I have this deep appreciation for Mr. Rogers. Uh, and so... I don't know if you guys saw, but this documentary came out a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And this documentary is really good. If you, hadn't, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it, because it is a powerful look into the life of Mr. Rogers. And it's filled with all these stories, story after story, of people that are impacted by Mr. Rogers. And it's this simple message of like kindness and love, but, but it changes people. And so after I saw this movie, I'm like, man, how did Mr. Rogers get to be that way? He's so great. How did he get there? And so then I found this book called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And it gets into the backstory a little bit about what did Mr. Rogers believe and how did it change his life. And I was reading, and as I was reading this book, one phrase kept coming up. It's like the phrase he lived by. And what that phrase is, is this, what is essential in life is invisible to the eye. So what Mr. Rogers believed is what is essential in life, what we really need, is actually something that we cannot see. It's invisible to the eye. He understood that everything we can see, all these created things, are all insufficient. What we need is an unseen, self-sufficient one. And again, this changed the way he lived. Because he believed this and it took root in his heart, he was compelled to spend time with God. He wanted God to be with him every step of the way, and so he invited God into every moment of his life. And this book actually details kind of how he did that. He would wake up at 5 a.m. every day, and he would pray and read his Bible and just spend some time with God. And then when he finished that, at 7.30, he would go to his local pool and he would sing the same song every day. And that song was a song called Jubilate Deo, which means rejoice in the Lord. So he'd sing this song, rejoice in the Lord, and he would jump in the water and as he's swimming, he's singing rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And then he gets out of the water and he goes to the television studio. He's getting ready to, to do his show. And he says that every day as he walks into the studio, he would pray, let some word that is heard today be yours. So we see this constant communication with God, inviting God into every moment of his day because he knew that what is essential in life is invisible to the eye. And that took root in his heart. 
One of Mr. Rogers' best friends was a man named Henry Nowen. And Henry Nowen describes this kind of prayerful life. And Henry Nowen described it like this. He says, prayer is the breath of human existence. When we walk in the Lord's presence, everything we see, hear, touch, or taste reminds us of Him. This is what is meant by a prayerful life. It is not a life in which we say many prayers, but a life in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is done, said, or understood independently of Him who is the origin and purpose of our existence. It's like he's saying, behind everything we see is the unseen, sufficient one. Behind every gift is the giver. And so before we close, I want us to look again at the life of Jesus. Because if anyone understands the self-sufficiency of the Father, I think it is the Son. And when we look at his life, his life and his teachings are all about connecting with the Father. From the very beginning, some of his first recorded words in the book of Luke are when he is like a 12-year-old boy and his parents are looking for him. They're like, where, where is he? And finally, they find him. And what Jesus says is, didn't you know I would be in my Father's house? Didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? So again, from the very beginning, we see that he was spending time with the Father. And then earlier we talked about, you know, Jesus was having this conversation with the woman, the Samaritan woman, and he said, disciples, go get food. So finally, the disciples and Jesus meet back up again, and the disciples are like, Jesus, you've got to eat. They are urging him, eat some food. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He's like, I trust the Father. And then finally, towards the end of his life, when Jesus knows the cross is right around the corner, he wants, what he wants more than anything is to be with the Father. So he goes to a garden, he falls on his face, and he prays. And this is his prayer. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He wants to be with his Father. And what we see in the life of Jesus over and over again is not a begrudging or this half-hearted obedience. Like, man, I really want to do this, but since the Father says to do this, okay, I'll do this instead. What we always see is a joyful obedience. In Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of being with his father. The joy of trusting his father. So he thought, you know, if he had to suffer physically, if he had to suffer emotionally, so be it. He would endure because the physical suffering is nothing compared to the glory of the father. So what we see in the life of Jesus and the death of of Jesus is our greatest gift from a self-sufficient God to a needy, insufficient people. So as we close, 
I want us to go back to that initial question. You know, what comes to our minds when we think about God? What comes to our minds when we think about the self-sufficient God? And as we do that, I want us to think about one last picture. And so in Psalm 23, a psalm probably a lot of us are familiar with, David gives us a picture of this self-sufficient God. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When I am with the Lord, I have everything I need. And he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. I can rest and know I will never go hungry. He says, he leads me beside still waters. I can rest and know I'll never go thirsty. And it says, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. He is the one who satisfies. 